So at the end of chapter two, Charlie was feeling pretty bad about herself because it seemed that her sister or her family didn't care about her. And she was jealous of the fun that her sister was having where she was staying in Raleigh. So here's chapter three. That night, out on the back porch with Gus and Bertha, I saw the first star twinkling over the treetops. I closed my eyes and wished like crazy. Making a wish, Gus asked. I felt myself blush. No. Bertha nudged Gus. Tell her about the time you wished your Uncle Dean would disappear, and then he did, she said. Gus flapped his hand at her. Aw, now, Bertie. She don't want to hear that old boring story. He rocked his chair, making the porch floor creak and groan. While Bertha talked a blue streak and hardly ever sat still, Gus was quiet and easygoing, with a calm, slow way about him. He wore a baseball cap all day and half the night, his scraggly brown hair poking out from under it in every which way. The bill of his cap was dark brown with dirt and greasy fingerprints. That there's Pegasus, he said, pointing to a cluster of stars hovering way up over the top of the mountains in the distance. Gus should have been a scientist, Bertha said. He can tell you everything you ever wanted to know about stars, and air and plants and water and weather and all that stuff. Gus let out a little pfft. He thinks I married him for his looks. Bertha winked at me. But I married him for his brains, she said. Gus laughed. And then the most amazing thing happened. They both reached out at the exact same time and held hands. It was like somebody said, okay, on the count of three, hold hands. I'd never in my whole life seen Scrappy and Mama hold hands. Shoot, most of the time, they didn't even look at each other. I watched Gus and Bertha sitting there gazing at the night sky. The corners of their mouths turned up into contented smiles. Every now and then, Bertha looked dreamily over at Gus, like he was a movie star and not some scraggly-haired man who worked in a mattress factory over in Cooperville. We stayed out there till it started to sprinkle again. A soft, cold rain that sent the cats at our feet, darting inside. I went to bed that night with my head swirling. I thought about Scrappy snoring away in the county jail, and Mama staring up at the ceiling of her bedroom. I thought about Jackie, whispering gossip and painting her toenails with Carol Lee. I thought about Howard Odom with his up-down walk and his good-hearted family. And I thought about Gus and Bertha holding hands under the glow of Pegasus. And then I thought about my own pitiful self, laying there wondering if my wish would ever come true. The next day, I wore Jackie's old white majorette boots to school. I knew I'd made a mistake the minute I got on the bus. As I made my way down the aisle, some of those girls pointed at my boots, giggling and whispering. I felt my face burn, and I glared at them. Howard motioned for me to sit next to him, but I flopped down in the seat behind him. I spent the morning drawing on my arm with a blue marker and pretending to read. At recess, Howard tried to get me to let him show me around the school. I'm your backpack buddy, remember, he said. I shook my head. Forget it, I said. I'm not really interested. Besides, I'm not going to be here much longer. Why not? I rolled my eyes. I told you, I'm going back to Raleigh. But what if your mama don't get on her feet? Her, get her feet on the ground, he said. Well, what the heck kind of question was that? I stomped away from him and plopped down under the cafeteria windows and glared at the kids playing soccer on the playground. Once or twice, I glanced over at Howard. He was drawing circles in the dirt with his foot and looking all mopey. When the bell rang, everybody scrambled to line up. A bunch of wild boys pushed and shoved their way in front of Howard, and he didn't even say anything. As I headed toward the line, a girl from my class named Audrey Mitchell waltzed right up to me and said, Nice boots. She smirked while her friends giggled behind her. I felt Scrappy's temper working its way from the tip of my toes to the top of my head, hot as fire. 
Then I said, thanks, they're good for kicking, and I kicked her skinny shin, hard. The next few minutes were a blur of crying and hollering and tattling, and then I found myself sitting in front of Mr. Mason, the principal. While he lectured about my inappropriate behavior, I studied the inky little stars and hearts I had drawn on my arm that morning. Mr. Mason asked me if I knew what I did was wrong, and would I like it if somebody did that to me, and a bunch of other questions I didn't even care about. I said yes, sir, no, sir, but I kept my eyes on my inky arm and clung to the heels of those majorette boots against the legs of my chair. I shrugged when he said he was going to have to call Bertha and tell her what I'd done. Then I went back to my class and said I was sorry to Audrey Mitchell, even though I wasn't really, and that, how, and that was how my second day of school in Colby went. That afternoon on the bus, Howard ignored my laser thoughts again and made a beeline right for me. He dropped into the seat next to me. "'You should save me a seat, because I think backpack buddies are supposed to sit together,' he said. "'That's against the rules,' I said. "'I'm pretty sure you can save a seat for a backpack buddy.' I rolled my eyes and looked out the window. "'Why'd you kick Audrey Mitchell?' Howard asked. I told him how she had said, "'Nice boots,' with that smirk on her face." He shook his head and said, Dang, Charlie, why you gotta get so mad about that? That ain't nothing. I shot him a glare. Maybe it was nothing to him, but it was something to me. I almost told him about my fiery temper that I got from Scrappy, but I didn't. Instead, I told him how I got sent home from kindergarten the very first day for poking some boy with a pencil. Eraser end or pointy end? Howard asked. Pointy. Dang, Charlie. I shrugged. I know, but I was mad. About what? He stuck his thumb right through my sandwich, I said. Howard shook his head again, making his red hair flop down over his glasses. Here's what you do from now on, he said. Every time you feel yourself starting to get mad, say, pineapple. Pineapple? Yeah. Why? That'll be like a code word to remind yourself to simmer down. Mama taught my little brother, Cotton, to say, rutabaga, every time he gets the urge to draw on the wall. Does it work? Sometimes. That sounded like the dumbest thing I'd ever heard, but I didn't say so. We sat in silence as the bus made its way up the narrow mountain road. Every once in a while, the view out the window changed from woods, thick with pine trees and ferns and moss-covered rocks, to a wide-open view of the mountains stretching on forever in the distance. A smoky haze hovered over them, soft gray against the deep blue of the mountains. That's why they're called the Blue Ridge Mountains, Gus had told me the first day I got to Colby, because they're blue. Then he had gone on to explain how the color was because of something the pine trees released into the air. I didn't know what the heck he was talking about, but I had nodded like I did. When the bus got to Howard's house, he grabbed his backpack and said, Remember, pineapple. I watched him and his brother go up the rickety steps of their front porch and disappear inside the house, letting the screen door slam with a bang behind them. Next to the front door was a ratty-looking couch covered with a bedspread. Wilted yellowing plants and dried-up flowers planted in coffee cans lined the edge of the porch. Maybe the Odom's hearts were so good that they didn't care that they lived in such sad-looking house. The bus chugged and groaned up the winding road. I was thinking about what I was going to say to Bertha about my kicking incident when a commotion outside the window caught my eye. Two dogs were fighting in a driveway beside a cluster of trailers. One was small and black. The other one was brown and black and skinny as all get-out. A little girl was screaming and carrying on while an old man turned on a garden hose and aimed a spray of water at the skinny dog. Get out of here, he hollered. A woman ran out of the trailers and tried to grab the black dog while the skinny dog snapped and growled and then suddenly just took off running. He ran along the edge of the road beside the bus for a minute or two, his long ears flapping in the breeze. 
I pressed my face against the window and watched him lope along the side of the road and then turn and disappear into the woods. When I got off at Gus and Bertha's a few minutes later, I looked down at those majorette boots. Jackie had always looked so pretty in them, but I looked dumb. Those girls were right to laugh at me. That familiar mad feeling was settling over me like a blanket, but this time I was feeling mad at myself for being a loser that nobody wanted. I stomped my foot, and then I kicked at gravel, sending it tumbling into the rhododendron bush along the side of the driveway. Then I whispered, Pineapple, before heading up to Gus and Bertha's. Chapter 4 I figured Bertha was going to be mad at me for kicking that girl, but she surprised me by putting her arm around me and saying, Tomorrow's a new day. Then she gave me a little squeeze and added, Personally, I love those boots. She didn't say one word about my inappropriate behavior. Mama would have hollered at me and reminded me for the umpteenth time that I was a troublemaker like Scrappy. After supper that day, we had blueberry pie for dessert, and I got to make my wish. If you cut off the pointed end of a slice of pie and save it for last, you can make a wish when you eat it. I had learned that from my cousin, Melvin, who swore it had worked for him when his brother ran off and got married and left him with the bedroom all to himself. I knew Gus and Bertha were watching me cut off that pointed piece and push it to the edge of my plate, but they didn't say anything. Even Bertha had been kind of quiet during supper. Maybe she really was mad at me for kicking Audrey. Maybe she was thinking, the apple don't fall far from the tree. Maybe that night in bed, she and Gus would whisper to each other how much I am like Scrappy, and what in the world had they gotten themselves into when they agreed to let me stay with them. After I ate that little pointed piece of pie and made my wish, I went out front to watch Gus do some weeding in the vegetable garden. A fluffy black cat rubbed against my legs, purring up a storm. I wrote my name in the dirt with a stick and then scribbled it out. There wasn't one blade of grass in that yard, just dirt and rocks, with sprinkles of color here and there. Patches of wildflowers nestled around the clothesline posts. The pink blooms of a dogwood tree over by the driveway. A neat row of daffodils lined up like soldiers along the edge of the chicken wire fence that surrounded the garden. Gus whistled while he hoed around the tiny tomato plants, stepping carefully between the pole beans and zucchini that were just beginning to poke through the warm spring dirt. On my very first day in Colby, Bertha had said to Gus, let's take Charlie on a tour of the garden. So I had followed along behind them while they pointed out each little plant, telling me how the pole beans were going to climb up the twine and the zucchini would have giant yellow flowers. I had nodded and said, oh, because what else can you say about vegetables in a garden? But Gus, you would have thought that was the Garden of Eden out there the way he took care of it, examining each new leaf on the okra plants or moving a squash vine off the walking path. So while I scribbled in the dirt, Gus whistled and hoed. Every now and then, he tugged on the bill of his cap or swatted at mosquitoes. I could hear Bertha in the kitchen talking to some of the cats while she fed them, scolding one of them for killing a bird, telling another one he was getting too fat. I was about to go back inside when something caught my eye. There was movement behind the tangle of shrubs that separated the yard from the woods. The black cat darted off, disappearing behind the shed over by the garden. I stood real still and squinted into the darkness of the woods. All of a sudden, a dog poked its head out from behind the bushes, a skinny brown and black dog with long floppy ears, the same dog I'd seen fighting that afternoon. He looked at me and cocked his head. I took one slow, tiptoeing step toward him. He ducked his head back a little, watching me. I took another step, and quick as lightning, he ran off into the woods. Dang it, I said. You say something? Gus called from the garden. There was a dog over there. I pointed to the bushes. Brown and black? Floppy ears? Yeah, I said. Did you see him? No, but I've seen him plenty of times before. Who does he belong to? 
Gus propped the hoe against the fence and sat in a lawn chair in the yard. Just an old wiry stray, he said. Been hanging around here for months. Bertha keeps putting table scraps out for him. He don't mind eating her meatloaf, but he don't, he don't want nothing else to do with her. I looked toward the woods. I bet I can catch him, I said. Gus took off his baseball cap and scratched his head. That old mud is mighty skittish. If I can catch him, can I keep him? I think that dog would rather be a stray, he said. But I knew better. I knew what it felt like to be a stray, not having a home where somebody wanted you. And he was a fighter, like me. That dog and I had a lot in common. I was suddenly overwhelmed with love for that skinny dog. I made a solemn vow and promised to myself right then and there, that dog was going to be mine.